Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Virtually Speaking with Jay Aykroyd. That's me, Jay Aykroyd. Pretty much every Thursday, we discuss something interesting, usually about current affairs, usually from a progressive point of view, and usually with an author of a recent book. Um, if you'd like to ask a question or make a comment, you can do so by joining us in Second Life. The soul is up on the website at virtuallyspeaking.us, by calling in at 646-200-3440, or by tweeting me at Jay Aykroyd, that's J-A-Y-A-C-K-R-O-Y-D, or using the hashtag vSpeak. Tonight we're here with Lynn Stout. She's a distinguished professor of law at Cornell University. She's written a very illuminating book. It's called The Shareholder Value Myth. It explains how we came to believe in this fairly bizarre doctrine, once you examine it a little bit, and what the alternatives are to maximizing shareholder value. Professor Stout is an internationally recognized expert in the field of corporate governance, securities regulation, financial derivatives, law and economics, and uh, moral behavior. She's the author of numerous articles and books on these topics and lectures widely. Her most recent book is The Shareholder Value Myth, How Putting Shareholders First Harms Investors, Corporations, and the Public. Lynn, welcome. It's so great that you could join us. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me, Jay. One of the things that really struck me as I was going through the book, Lynn, is just how crystal clear it is. Um, you know, it's a lot. These, these issues are often presented in an opaque kind of way, and you just walk through them right, just, just such a, in such a clear way. Book. I really urge you to get the book actually, because it really explains how this arose, why it arose, and and what we can do about it. Now, I guess the first question is. Well, your intro, you call this the dumbest idea in the world. Well, actually, Jack Welsh called it that, didn't he? Yes, he did. And what's amazing about it is how widely accepted it is. If you hear people say the same thing over and over, eventually you just come to assume it's true. But this particular idea, when you look at it, if you look at it carefully, if you look at the background and the evidence, it's pretty obvious after a while it's not true. No matter how many times someone may have told you that. Let's take a second to say the phrase itself. I didn't really say it. Maximizing shareholder value. That's the phrase that people talk about. That's the, supposedly the, as economists say, the objective function of any corporation should be maximizing shareholder value. And right. This is, this is, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jay. No, and that's just not true, right, Lynn? Yeah. Well, it's, it's what we, what it is is it's a philosophy that's been dominant in the business world for, say, the past 30 years. And it's sometimes called shareholder primacy, and it's a combination of a number of ideas. I'm sure your listeners and your readers have heard um, the idea that shareholders own corporations, that the job of directors is to maximize, quote, shareholder value. And usually the implicit assumption that the best way to measure shareholder value is share price. So this all boils down to this tremendous pressure on directors and executives to try and make sure they keep the share price of the company as high as possible at all times. And uh, that, the myth part is that that's good for us, that it's good for investors, that it's good for corporations, or that it's good for the public. Well, let's just take a second to step back just a little bit, because the idea of how we organize public corporations and how we permit them to operate is a policy choice. We don't have to have publicly held corporations. We don't have to have corporations at all. As you point out, there are plenty of entities that aren't incorporated that function perfectly well, like the Catholic Church. And there are alternative forms of social organization. The whole idea is to come up with a way of organizing socially that benefits society, right? Well, that's certainly the role that corporations historically, in fact, played for most of the 20th century. So if you look back, if you, if you don't get obsessed with the past 30 years and actually look back to what companies did, say, from the 1920s on, they were governed according to a philosophy called managerialism. 
And the managerialist philosophy held that corporations were great economic institutions that also had a social function, and that the directors and executives who ran them were sort of like trustees. They were fiduciaries for the entity, but the goal of running the entity was to provide benefits to a wide range of society, not just shareholders, but also bondholders, customers, employees, the community, the nation. And, and that was actually... Yeah, that's implicit, for instance, is one of the reasons that we have corporations we want to use them, is they're in principle infinitely live. Exactly right. And in theory, if, if, they were, you know, if they were governed the right way, they would be able to pursue the kind of long-term projects, you know, coming up with great research discoveries, new pharmaceuticals and medical devices and, and new technologies. Um, they would be able to, in some ways, solve those long-term problems better than your average human being or politician who's worried about the next election test. And it's easy to point to manifestations of that, for example, Bell Labs or the IBM research facilities in Armonk. That's right. Back during the managerialist era, if you look at the large American corporations, many of them had these pure research institutes, think tanks inside the company. So you have Bell Labs, which you've mentioned, IBM's Big Blue, Kodak, um, Xerox, Procter & Gamble, DuPont, and it was understood that part of the job of the company was to do the kind of pure research and innovation that ultimately ends up benefiting society. And the corporation, of course, because it may, may not have been Xerox Park that they actually benefited from, but Xerox was able to do things in innovative and long-term ways because they made investments in something like a 10- or 12-year time frame. Exactly, and eventually, of course, that produced terrific profits for, among others, investors who actually got better, better returns from managerial corporations than shareholders are getting from public companies today. Right. Now, can we just take a second to turn to the book structure itself? Because I want to make sure that we uh, walk through that a little bit, because as I said, it's really clearly written. You start out by talking about the rise of this, of this shareholder myth. And um, that you attribute back to Milton Friedman around 1980 in an article by him, an op-ed by him. Right. Yeah, it turns out this idea comes from a bunch of economists, free market Chicago school economists, Milton Friedman being one of the leading members of the school. And in the 1970s and 80s, they started making these arguments about the best way to measure corporate performance. And these economists, who were not lawyers and frankly didn't understand the legal structure of corporations, they just assumed that a corporation was just a bigger version of a sole proprietorship, meaning that somebody had to own it and they assumed the owner was the shareholder. And they developed this theory of shareholder primacy that has this whole complex of ideas, the ideas that shareholders are the owners, that the job of the directors is to maximize their returns, and they said this is going to be economically efficient. And what's interesting about that is that it turns out it's not well-grounded in history, as I've mentioned, and it's not well-grounded in law or even in economic theory once you understand the law, and it hasn't been supported by the evidence. Well, you just walked through the, the if I remember correctly, three elements that, have, that they have wrong when they say that that's what the idea of a, a shareholder value is. That's right. So, so one of the things that you see when you study this myth more carefully is that, in fact, the economists, the free market economists, got the law wrong. They described shareholders as owners. And that's legally mistaken because corporations are legal entities. And as the Supreme Court has recently reminded us in uh, Citizens United, they're legal persons, which means that a corporation owns itself. That's a hard concept for many people to understand, and Milton Friedman obviously didn't get it. 
but a corporation owns itself, and what shareholders have is a kind of contract with the corporation. But they're not any different in legal terms than employees who also have contracts with corporations, customers who have contracts with corporations, um, bondholders who have corporations, contracts with corporations. There's nothing particularly special about shareholders. Sure, we want them to benefit, but they're not the end-all and be-all as a legal matter. Well, and one of the reasons that we would want to form a corporation, a publicly held corporation, rather than a uh, partnership, is because it locks the capital into the corporation, is one of the points you make. And that's why it has to be an independent entity. It can't be just the sum of four individual partner parts, but an independent entity of its own, right? That's exactly right. To, to a lot of people, and, and to me some days, the notion that you can have a legal entity uh, it can be a little scary. You think, did we create a Frankenstein's monster here? But there's a reason for it. Because the corporation owns itself, that also means that the corporation's assets belong to the corporation, which means if the corporation is pursuing a long-term project, say drug research where you don't expect the drug, you're not sure you're going to come up with anything at all, but if you do, it won't be profitable for 10 or 20 years. That's possible in the corporation because the corporation knows it can begin investing money and time and effort into this project and you know nobody's going to be able to show up and say hey don't spend money on that we want you to give all the money to us and so the phrase that's used by economists sometimes is that the corporate form locks capital into the corporation so that it can be committed to long-term projects the problem with viewing shareholders as owners of corporations and saying that the shareholders always call the tune is that means that this generation of shareholders, if it wants to, can go into the company and tell the directors, hey, we don't want you to do any long-term research. We want you to pay us a big, fat dividend. We want the cash now. Right. Or they could say, or we'll remove our capital. And the corporation structure prevents them from doing this. So the idea of making shareholders primus, shareholder primacy overrides the benefit of having a corporate structure, right? That's exactly right. The whole purpose of having a corporation economically is so you have these big entities that can, that can pursue these large-scale, long-term uncertain projects. And if you say, nope, they have to do what the shareholders want to do, and that includes maximizing the money that goes to shareholders, it can make it impossible for them to do the very job we want them to do. Now, you say... Well, let's 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 just break this up with an example now. And the perfect example of the pursuit of a short-term return that would benefit shareholders immediately was poor safety practices on the part of British Petroleum. Yes, absolutely. I use that example in the first part of the book. So here you have British Petroleum, which is, by the way, a company that is famous or was famous for focusing on shareholder value. And what that meant was there was enormous pressure on people at all levels of the company to try and cut costs as low as possible so that this quarter's profits looked as high as possible. And what that meant as a practical matter in the Gulf was that when they ran into drilling problems at the Macondo Well down in the Gulf, rather than delay drilling, which would cause them to incur costs, they said, nope, we're just going to keep drilling even though we haven't taken the time out to follow the proper safety procedures. And, of course, what happened eventually, and by the way, BP had a history of cutting safety corners for the five, last five or ten years. What happened eventually, of course, was that disaster struck. 
And that not only ended up hurting the current generation of BP shareholders, the ones that were unlucky enough to be left holding the bag when things went wrong, but it also hurt BP bondholders. It hurt the shareholders of other oil companies that were in the Gulf and that also were subject to a drilling moratorium. It hurt people who owned real estate along the Gulf, people who worked in the fishing industry, the tourism industry, and, of course, it hurt the Gulf itself. It damaged the ecosystem, which is bad for future generations and the planet. And that's a classic example of what this focus on share price, this notion that you have to maximize so-called shareholder value, can produce. Now, another problem another problem that arises, of course, you have heterogeneity in your shareholder population. And one of the problems we're facing now is that that heterogeneity is leading to more influence on the part of a small number of shareholders to pursue this kind of short-term thinking, hedge funds in particular. That's right. When you actually stop to think about it, you know, one of the interesting points I like to make to people is that, is that it's commonly assumed, you hear sometimes people describe corporations as legal fictions. They think corporations are fictions and shareholders are real. And actually, it's exactly the other way around. Corporations are legal entities, and they're very real. They may be invisible, but they're real. Just like, you know, you can't see gravity, but it's a real force. It's shareholders that are actually fictional, because when we think of shareholders, what we're actually thinking of is human beings who own shares. And the minute you recognize that reality, you also have to recognize that the whole idea of maximizing shareholder value is logically incoherent. You can't have a single shareholder value because different shareholders have different values. So you have some shareholders that are holding for the long term and they don't care about share price next month. They're worrying about long-term profitability. But there are other shareholders, especially hedge funds, that just want to get the share price up so they can sell and get out. You get some shareholders who are worried about their corporations making profits by imposing what economists call external costs, by hurting other industries or other resources. Because if you're diversified, you know, if you own real estate in the Gulf and you also own BP stock, you don't want BP raising its share price by doing things that are going to damage the value of your real estate. Um, so diversified shareholders have different interests from shareholders that only own stock in one or two firms. And finally, I think most importantly, most people, the evidence suggests, are what we call pro-social. That's the fancy word for it. Uh, the layman's term is they have a conscience. And they don't want their businesses to make profits by damaging people and harming other people's property. They want their business to make profits by making the world a better place. And focusing just on getting share price up doesn't recognize the interests of those shareholders who say, look, I want the share price up, but I want to make money the right way, not the wrong way. Those citizens who happen to be shareholders in a particular company among their portfolio of holdings. Oh, sorry, what was that? I said, but when you say shareholder, of course, you mean a person who holds shares in one company, but also in others, perhaps. Or that's has right. I mean, bond holdings in another company or in the same yeah, company. Yeah, that's right, because we're really not. There's no such thing as a shareholder. There's not a platonic entity floating out there that only cares about the share price of one company. We're really human beings, and we have a whole bunch of interests. And, you know, if we're rational, we don't want our investment interest in companies to be maximized by doing things that cause greater interest to our other to greater harm to our other interests. Another great example that I find very ironic is, you know, sometimes you see pension funds pushing companies to save money by firing employees. And of course, who are the pension funds supposed to be taking care of? You know, employees. 
Right. And also, they're also supposed to be looking at a long-term return. But there's been this kind of quarterly obsession for pension fund people as well. And as pension funds have increasingly purchased hedge funds as their funding mechanism, which we've been, I've been very disappointed to see has happened in some municipalities in this country, which is crazy. Um, you know, municipalities looking at a long-term investment scheme and should be looking at long-term investments as part of their portfolio. Um, you've seen this quarterly craziness in, inhabit so many other people in the investment community. Now, yeah. the other thing that comes to mind when you talk about the insanity of pursuing short-term, short-term goals, short-term quarterly profit goals is Enron. I mean, that went to the point of illegality. Oh, yeah. But it was it was... It reached that point because Enron was a machine that was organized to maximize share price. The employees, really, from very low levels all the way up to the board of directors, were compensated primarily with shares of Enron stock, and their bonuses were determined by share price performance. And what that meant was eventually the entire company was so fixated on maximizing share price that it took on huge risks that ended up blowing up the company. You know, some people think that it was fraud that brought down Enron, but that's not what happened. The fraud was to cover up the fact that the company was basically insolvent because it had been making bad derivatives bets all in the quest to get that stock price up next week. Right. But, you, but one of the things that's disturbing is how, is how this came to pass. Because this, I mean, the contrast I always make is between um, George Romney and Mitt Romney. I mean, George Romney was someone who believed that AMC, the car company that he ran, should continue and operate, you know, for a generation, serving the workers, serving everybody involved, and not merely serving the uh, the people who held stock in the company at that time. While Mitt Romney seemed to believe that the primary goal of a capitalist is to uh, cash out accumulated value. Exactly right. And that's because of the dominance of this ideology. And it really is ideology. What's happened is this idea started with the free market economists and it became very popular in universities, in business schools, in economics departments, and in law schools. And we have an entire generation of business leaders, like Mitt Romney, who've been taught that this is what they should do. And on top of that, we've had certain changes in the law. For example, in particular, Congress in 1993 changed the tax law to require corporations to tie executive pay to uh, so-called objective metrics, and the most common response was to tie CEO pay to share price. So now you've got a situation where you've directly incentivized the top executives to focus primarily on share price. So when you take the ideology plus these changes in the law, plus the fact that there are very powerful interest groups like hedge funds that have used this ideology to push the system in a direction that allows them to make these short-term profits, we've seen really a dramatic change in the direction of the business sector. And it's pretty clear at this point, if you look at the evidence, that it is damaging to corporations and to the economy and to shareholders themselves. To the point that IPOs are down, to the point oh, where companies don't yeah. want to go public even though yeah. it gives them access to ca huge amounts of capital, the price that you pay, the lack of control of your company that you turn over to people with this ideology um, becomes a serious disincentive to capitalizing yourself properly through stock market transactions. That's right. I mean, the fact that people starting new businesses don't want to go public anymore shows that they recognize how dysfunctional this shareholder primacy ideology is. They recognize they can't 
build a long-term successful business this way. And this is showing up, by the way, a lot of people don't know this, but the numbers of public companies in the United States is dropping alarmingly, like an endangered species. We've lost half of our public companies in the past 15 years. And that's because either they've been taken private by people, stripping them of value, or because they don't want to be in the situation where they're constantly threatened by someone who's going to strip their value. I mean, or, gave, oh, or, they, or they've been blown up by bad yeah. practices. That's what's happened to Enron, and that's what, what happened to half of the financial firms in the 2008 crisis. Right, that are now, you know, those 10 banks became five, those 20 banks. That's exactly right. Half of them blew up, and they got acquired by the few that remained. Right, and Goldman Sachs turned into a money center bank. <laughs> yes. I can't get over that still. I mean, I, I can't imagine a company with a culture less um, consistent with being a money center bank. But there yes. Was. Now, what I, read, I read an article a little while ago that I put up on the website called Why Apple Should Ignore Its Shareholders by Felix Salmon, who is a kind of iconoclastic guy who's writing about, writes about finance like Financial Times. And what he said, and it's kind of funny, he said that uh, the world, that another guy, Alan Sloan, divides the world of Apple into two types of people, people who buy the product, company's products and play with them, but the financial voyeur types, the fun comes from watching a lunatic lurching of Apple's stock price. Mm-hmm. Now, that's been an extraordinary success story, Apple, in terms of stock price, but it hasn't been like, because they're worried about individual quarterly returns, has it? No, and in, and in fact, it's, um, it's widely perceived among people who are familiar with the business world, and I think there's some evidence to back it up, that the companies that do the best long term are the companies that are not focused on stock price. Um, those are the companies that are focused on producing great products, taking care of their employees and maintaining good relations with the community and with the nation. And those companies often are the ones that do better. Now, the problem they face is because of some of the changes we've made in the law that were designed to promote shareholder democracy, but that really just gave short-term shareholders more power, even a well-run company that's looking to the long term has to worry, as Apple does, that a hedge fund manager is going to show up buy 5 or 10% of the stock and then say, look, if you don't start cashing out, you know, buying back shares or paying a massive dividend, I'm going to start making a lot of trouble for you and your board of directors. And we can cite one example that you quote in the book, Carl Icahn and his takeover of an airline, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, there's only been one company that Carl Icahn has ever actually run, and he ran it into the ground. Right. So, but the takeover yeah. he talked about said he pulled $400 million out of it, but cost the company $800 million in the process. Well, by the time you, you figure out the cost to other investors in the company, including bondholders and employees, yes. All that money was not created. It was basically just siphoned off from other parties with interest in the company. And that's, of course, what Bain Capital has described to have been doing during the campaign, um, just taking the money out that's there and then leaving the Hulk to, to rust away. Now, when... And so the idea is that, that ICON is actually doing harm, and that's what you're saying here as well, when they're trying to mm-hmm. – you have to worry about sitting there, you know, a, a, a beautifully singing bird in the jungle with snakes all around you. Yeah. Well, actually, that's a metaphor from Cryptonomicon. Uh, it's a great book if you haven't read it. Um, I have read it. I, you and, and I, obviously, we both have stamina because it's a good thousand plus pages long. Well, the sarcastic use of the word shareholder value throughout it, it, it just, yeah. it's, it's just hilarious. Because they, the, uh, the, pro, the, I'm sorry, folks, I'll, I'll be really quick. It's about a, it's about a Silicon Valley 
entrepreneurship, and they're always talking about shareholder value, and they're always talking about what they're doing is increasing shareholder value while doing and things. And they're always that. worried about being sued by their shareholders for failing to maximize shareholder value. By the dentist. Exactly. And the irony there is that they're wrong to worry. The author got that part wrong. So another part of the myth that's very common is that a lot of people believe, including, you know, sometimes you see this reported in the business press, they think that if the directors of the company show some backbone and say, no, we're going to think for the future, we're going to take care of our employees, we're going to be corporate citizens, a lot of people think that you can be sued for that. And that part is complete myth. There's a legal doctrine called the business judgment rule. And it says as long as the directors don't take the corporation's money for themselves, as long as they're not stealing, they have a very wide range of discretion to say, we're not going to maximize shareholder value. We're not going to focus on share price. We're going to focus on making great products, taking care of our people, and being good citizens. And along the way, we're going to do as well as we can for investors, but they are not the only group we're looking at. That's actually what the law says. Yeah, and I just want to be clear, folks. This is not controversial. This is not something that – if you go to Delaware courts and go through the Delaware history of corporate law, the professor argues, and I think quite clearly, that this is the law. It's not yeah. controversial. The idea that yeah. we should maximize shareholder value in a narrow way, there's no support for that in the law, actually. Yeah, no, there's a great recent case called Air Products versus Air Gas, where I think it was Air Gas had stock trading at 40 or $50 a share. And this company called Air Products came along and wanted to buy all the shares for $70 a share. And the directors of Air Gas said, no, we don't want to sell. And the Delaware court said they don't have to. They don't have an obligation to make sure their shareholders get $70 a share. If they think the company's worth more than that, they don't have to sell. And, so when you look at cases like that, it's pretty clear there's no legal duty to maximize shareholder value as measured by share price. Um, and that, that case actually made something clear to me I've always wondered about. It. I've always said, now, why is it that, uh, you know, in the efficient market hypothesis holds, if a company's stock is valued at $100, why does it take $120 or $140 a share to take it over? Doesn't that mean it's undervalued? And you make, and you make very clear, no, because that $100 is really a floor. It's not the ceiling, it's the floor. It's the value that the people willing to pay the least for the company. That is right. willing. And could you explain that? Because you did it really well in the book. Yeah, well, well, I think the most important thing to, to bear in mind, the really short version is, you know, we're all grown-ups now. We don't believe in the tooth fairy, and we don't believe in the efficient market hypothesis. You really can't find a financial expert under the age of 50 who will sit there and tell you that the stock market always prices companies correctly. We know it doesn't. I was, you know, I remember 1987, I walked into my office and one of my colleagues said, guess what, the stock market just dropped 20% and nobody knows why. So um, the fact is it's now pretty well understood. There are things you can do that will drive share price up in the short term, but probably not help and maybe even hurt the company in the long term. And those include things like paying big dividends, using a lot of money to repurchase shares, cutting expenses including R&D and marketing and other investment expenses and especially yeah yeah that's right cutting staffing and especially selling off pieces of the company we now know and and there's some theory that explains why the stock market will temporarily bump up in price but it's not sustainable and it doesn't reflect any long-term increase in the company's real economic value the problem is though the minute 
the minute you have to, you know, the minute you face that reality, you also have to face the reality that it's going to be in the interest of some shareholder to come in and push the company to do that, so they can sell and get that one-term bump up in share price. Because their theory is, after they do that, they'll just go invest in another company. But when everybody does that, you're going to see what we're seeing is we're running out of other companies to invest in. So the analogy I like to use is what what we're doing in the public corporation sector is a lot like fishing with dynamite. Investors are going out, especially hedge funds, and they're doing things that are going to make a lot of money for themselves in the short term. But when you have a lot of investors who are pushing companies to adopt these short-term strategies, what happens is that total returns from the corporate sector are going down. And that's actually what we're seeing. Investor returns from investing in public equity have been very poor for the past 15 or 20 years. In fact, I've seen it reported that for the first time in business history, you actually make less money or you have made less money investing in stocks than in plain old-fashioned vanilla corporate bonds, which are less risky. And that's a real switch. So what we're seeing is we're actually seeing that this strategy of pushing for short-term bump-ups at individual companies is harming our corporate sector and our returns as a whole. That is for the stock market as a whole, the same way that the fishermen who were fishing with um, on, on lines or using or using nets or other mechanisms that were self-sustaining in the fishing environment, um, they're not catching any fish either. That's right, because when everybody goes out and starts fishing with dynamite, in the short term you get more fish, and in the long term the fish disappear. And so the uh, tragedy of the commons comes up in the book. Uh, you, you use that you use that line, and that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about um, people coming in, a small number of small number of bigfoots coming in and destroying the common green uh, in order to raise one generation's worth of cattle, and then moving that's on right. for other green, looking for other green spots around the country. Yeah, and the, yeah, but the problem with the tragedy of the commons is when you've got some people who are fishing with dynamite. You know, the good guys who are fishing with hooks and lines begin to say, well, if I restrain myself and stick to sustainable fishing practices and sustainable investing, I'm just at a disadvantage because these other people are out there fishing with dynamite. And so we actually see now some of our pension funds, which are supposed to be representing long-term diversified investors, doing the kinds of things, the sorts of short-sighted investment strategies, pushing for the sorts of programs like paying big dividends that the short-term hedge funds are pushing because you know it's reasonable if you've got hedge funds out there doing that pension funds that don't do it are at an investing disadvantage so delia lake asks why are companies buying into this myth if it's widely understood that it's a myth why are companies buying into yeah, it? Yeah, that's what she says. And um, I, I think what we mean here is, well, I don't know. Well, what would you say to that question? Oh, well, yeah, no, what I would say is, I mean, it seems to me, you know, there's one really easy, straightforward answer, which is that top executives are paid according to share price. And ironically, we can put a lot of the blame for that on Congre- Congress and reformers who in 1993 said, we've got to tie pay to performance. So clearly we've got to go back and revisit that idea. If we're going to be tying pay to performance, it shouldn't be share price performance. Certainly not share price in the current quarter. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. I mean, there is some talk about trying to move it out to three years. Personally, I think, you know, that's that's the blink of an eye when you look at the sorts of long-term projects corporations are supposed to pursue. But I'll take three years or five years over next quarter. (laughs) But we're looking at a deeper problem. 
um, when we're talking about this, because the reason the 1993 law came into place is because senior management um, was closely tied to boards, and they weren't they weren't doing anything to justify the skyrocketing ratio of executive comp to worker comp, and that's why that 93 laws were put into place was to try to stem that. Now it didn't work; it got worse. Yeah. So there is a cultural problem with corporate America right now, and this this attempt to tie to tie performance to pay didn't work. I mean, the golden yeah. parachutes continued, but we still have this problem. We still have this problem of executives managing to their own interests rather than to the interest of the stakeholders as a whole. Well, yeah, I think, and in fact, we've worsened the problem. This is a case where it's it's very arguable that the cure was worse than the disease. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't go back and look at the disease again, but I'd love to see, you know, one of the first things I'd like to see is basically get rid of the part of the tax code that tries to tell uh, companies how to compensate their executives and instead put the pressure on independent boards to justify compensation. One of the ironies is by requiring directors to tie pay to so-called ex-ante metrics, you actually made directors less accountable because when an executive gets a big pay package, they say, hey, I didn't do it, the market did it. Right. So, you know, in a, in a way, I'd like to go back to some of the old-fashioned methods and say, no, you know, the directors decide what the executives get pay, get paid, and they're responsible for it. They're, they're deciding after the fact what the CEO is worth. They can't blame an executive compensation consultant or the metrics for that. If the CEO gets $10 million, it's because the director said he or she should. Um, and, you know, it may not be a perfect system, but, but it might be better than it was at least in the 1980s because we now have more independent boards. And in any case, we were getting better overall results under that system than we're getting under pay for performance. So I realize to a lot of people that sounds very counterintuitive, but if you look at history, that system worked better than what we've got today. Now, some people have said to me that, well, what we really need to do is just go back to 90% top marginal rates, just make it not worth it for people to earn those kinds of salaries. Yeah. If, yeah, if you're worried about executive compensation, I think that is certainly a strategy for it. Or you could at least say you, you eliminate a deduction for any pay over a certain ceiling. But, you know, at the end of the day, executive compensation, it's a hot-button issue to attract a lot of attention, but it's not a huge cost for most companies. Financial sector is a little different, but in other sectors it's not a huge cost. The bigger problem is that when you're trying to restrain pay and what you end up doing is creating these perverse incentives for, for executives to run the entire company in ways that end up being very bad. Well, so when we look at executive pay, the issue isn't so much how much they're paid, it's making sure they're not actually given incentives to do things that are damaging. Well, I think one of the things that happened with the high marginal rates on, on uh, in, uh, incomes over you know what would be around $10 million now was that there was incentives to circumvent the taxes and defer compensation by doing things like creating pension funds that the reason pension funds existed was partly so that senior executives could shield um, some of their income from taxation, and that had to be shared with the rest of the company because of ERISA and other laws. Do you think there's anything to that? Yeah, there, there might be. I mean, that's, yeah. that's not the problem I'm focused on. I know, know that. Because for, for me, what we are doing to our corporate sector, this is a really major problem. This is something that's affecting the health of our entire economy. It's the affecting the ability of people to save for retirement because they can't get decent returns from stocks. It's affecting their ability to keep their jobs 
because they're putting pressures on companies to fire employees to reduce costs. So to me, that's the 800-pound gorilla in the room. What is the 800-pound gorilla in the room? Oh, the, the fact that we've basically uh, we're we're destroying the ability of the corporate, the public corporation, to generate long-term returns along with stable jobs and uh, innovations. And in fact, the opposite of being an immortal, a possibly immortal organization, we're making them very mortal. Because right. it's yeah. not a sustainable model. You can't keep a company going. You end up like HP. Yeah. yeah. No, and in fact, what we've seen, another really interesting statistic is that the life expectancy of a Fortune 500 company today is only 15 years. You can't even get a kid out of high school in 15 years. And that's how long the average Fortune 500 company stays in the Fortune 500. You can't even get a product to market in a lot of industries. Yes. The new product yeah. to market. So everything's being put on fast forward. Fascinating. Now, I'd like you to explain one other thing that you explained so well. And I, it, it's something that I don't think people really get, and that is that bondholders and shareholders are really the same thing. Um, you refer to Black Scholes in doing so. Do yeah. Well, well what, it, what, what it really is is a recognition that um, bondholders and shareholders both are entitled to get money out of the company to some extent. Um, bondholders get it in the form of interest payments. Shareholders get it in the form of dividends. And in a way, you know, what that shows is that there's nothing particularly legally unique about shareholder status. This notion that shareholders own the company simply overlooks the fact that there are lots of groups, including bondholders, that also have rights to receive payments from companies. It's not like, you know, Moses came down with tablets that said, you know, shareholders are special. That's not in the law. <laughs> right, and the idea is that the, a shareholder is somebody who has access to a company's a stream of income from the company in the forms of dividends, and a bondholder in the form of interest. And they each have opposite they sit on opposite sides of the of the option side. One has a put, one has a call on the income, right? Right. Yeah. If you if you want to get into the technical economics like of it, yeah. Um, the idea the idea simply is um, it's it's important because it emphasizes the way shareholders don't really have a unique economic status. Either the bondholders or the shareholders get profits under certain circumstances. Right. And, that, and that's exactly the same thing in point of fact. It's not like there's a special status for them, although in this myth of shareholder value, there certainly is a special status. The other thing that has struck me is that pension holders who have actual contractual requirements under these law under these relationships don't seem to get the same level of the same level of uh, commitment from the corporate sponsorship that you'd expect them to get under the law. That's a little surprising. Well, yeah, well, not yeah, not according to this mythology, but you know, again, that's an, that's a good example, Jay. That's another group, um, you know, that that has a contractual claim on the corporations, shareholders, bondholders, and pension beneficiaries. Now, I want to close by getting a little bit meta. And that is, mm -hmm. you, you, you talk about the academic side of this to some degree throughout the book. And, you, and we should mention Posner as well. Richard Posner was actually a very important person in the promulgation of this idea because he brought it from the economist kind of working in their room with their chalkboard into the law itself. Posner yeah, there were, there were three guys from Chicago. Posner was one, and Frank Easterbrook and Dan Fischel were the others. Yeah, and can you explain the role that Posner played? Because I think it was actually seminal in, dis in getting this idea into the legal community. Yeah, well, I would say there's also Easterbrook and Fischel also wrote some very important books, but they're, they were all at Chicago at the same time, and they're, they're definitely uh, very simpatico. 
Um, and uh, essentially what they said was, look, once you assume that shareholders own companies and that they're what economists call the only residual claimants, that they're the ones that get all the money that's left over after all the other people with contracts from the firm get paid, then it makes sense from a social perspective. If you maximize the shareholders' interest, you're actually maximizing the value of the firm. And the problem with that, ironically, is that it just gets the law wrong. Shareholders are not the only residual claimants. They don't get everything that's left over. They're not entitled to all the corporation's profits. The corporation owns its own profits. What shareholders are entitled to is the dividends that the directors declare. And it's interesting, somehow that idea, which is legally indisputable, got completely wiped out from the Chicago School's discussion of what corporations were all about. And they used that mistaken description of the legal status of shareholders to advance an argument that if you maximize shareholder value, that was not only good for shareholders, it was good for society as a whole. Lynn, I'm going to ask you to repeat that, actually, yeah. um, that corporations own their own income. They retain yeah. their own income. They retain their earnings. It's not that the shareholders have a little chunk of it that, that they own on the, on the that the company's holding in 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 trust for them. It's not cash. It's, yeah. it's it's the entity itself. The corporation is its own entity. It owns itself. It owns its profits. It owns its earnings. It owns its capital, and the shareholders' right is limited to the dividend stream. That's exactly right. And the persons who decide what the dividend stream will be is the board of directors. And uh, again, you know, that can be an alarming it can be an alarming idea because you realize we have created these entities that have powers that are similar to the powers that organic human beings have, including the power to own their own property and keep their own profits. But um, again, that was done so that we would have these entities to pursue the long-term projects that people were unlikely to pursue. And uh, what that means is that when a company makes profits, it's up to the board of directors to decide how much of that is going to pay that, be paid out with, say, a, a salary increase for employees or maybe putting money into a research project or uh, putting a little aside to make the creditors feel better or even donating some to charitable projects. It's the directors who decide where the money goes. Now, obviously, uh, you know, I'm not saying they shouldn't take care of shareholders. They do want to take sh care of shareholders. And, uh, you know, historically... In the managerialist days, shareholders actually got more back from companies than they're getting today. But shareholders are not the only groups that benefit when the company is doing very well. Right. Now, we've got a couple of questions. One of them is, um, what, in, what in what aspects of executive pay and incentive systems do you see real hope for reform? And Coyote Longfall is trying to make the point that this all sounds very nice, but we still really do have this problem of massive executive comp um, distorting equality in the country right now. And it's becoming a problem in terms of economic growth as well. Yeah, I, I do agree. Um, and I think there's ways to solve it. I think corporate law is not the way to solve it. Maybe changes to the tax code, you know, maybe other legal things. But, you know, I, I, I hate to say it, but that's not the number one problem on my agenda. Gotcha. Coyote, <laughs> I, know, I start with a $15 minimum wage myself. Right. That would be a good place to start. I would, you know, you could raise the marginal tax rates. You could have a $15 minimum wage. You know, there are lots of things you could do. Trying to redistribute income by controlling executive compensation is not the best lever for you to pull. Now, Albert Gainsborough says uh, why uh, he thought that bondholders are reimbursed first versus shareholders. We're really talking about bankruptcy in that instance, aren't we? We're not talking about normal operations. 
the idea that yeah, there's a well, lot of creditors. Yeah, no, but even in normal operations, you have to pay interest. You have to pay. You have to meet your interest obligations before you pay any dividends. So in that sense, um, the bondholders do come first. But they're, you know, they've got contractual rights just as the shareholders do. Right. And the last question we're going to deal with is: um, Haven't different companies, as a matter of policy, who simply don't pay dividends? And Albert, I, I'll answer that one really quickly. There's actually a long-standing literature in the economic side um, that starts off with an article, a seminal article, that is: Why do companies pay dividends? Because, in point of fact, it doesn't make any sense for them to pay dividends if you look at it from a purely agency model. So there's something else going on, and that has to do with the kind of social and uh, the kind of social and long-term corporate personhood thing is that we're talking about now. It's it's not simply a matter of revenue flows. Is that anywhere near right, Lynn? Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. Uh under the man, at least in the managerialist era, it when when actually dividend payments were higher than they are today, it was understood that one of the constituencies that the managers were supposed to take care of was the shareholders. And it would have been viewed as a failure. You know, you're not doing your job as a good steward, as a good trustee, if you spend all of the money that you make on your employees and your interest payments to bondholders, and you're not taking good care of your shareholders. But the, the entire attitude was one of balancing the interests of different constituencies as opposed to focusing obsessively on shareholders and, worst of all, focusing on short-term shareholders. So, um, you know, a classic response to the observation that companies – don't pay dividends is to suggest that shareholders are still the only residual claimants because if the company doesn't pay dividends, then it's going to retain that money and that's going to bump up the share price. And um, there's some truth to that argument, but what it ignores is that it's the directors who decide what to do with the money that the company retains. They don't have to give it to the shareholders now. They don't even have to give it to the shareholders later. They can choose, and in fact, we probably want them, and long-term shareholders want them, to reinvest some of that money into the sorts of projects that will generate a lot of corporate profits down the line, not to mention perhaps taking care of their employees and their customers in a way that's more long-term and not so myopic. So, uh, you know, when you actually look at the reality of what shareholders are entitled to, you know, they're entitled to dividends, and then whatever increase in the value of their stock comes along with the director's decisions for how to take care of the entity in the long term. But this notion that somehow they're, they're owners or that they're entitled to every penny of profit the company makes simply isn't in the law. And one, I'm sorry, one final question. Do you think that we're going to see a rise in sole props, you know, back to the days of the uh, – crazy car industries in the, around the turn of the 20th century, or, you know, the uh, question comes from Milson, she, she refers to Krupps, the founder of, uh, you know, a uh, housewares division in Germany. Yeah, oh yeah, and, and in fact, uh, what, what we're already seeing, we're already seeing that as, as public companies are disappearing, they're being replaced with so-called private companies, and private companies are run according to the Krupps model, which means there's an individual or a family that owns all of the stock. And so a lot of these companies that are taken private or companies that never go public in the first place are owned by very wealthy individuals and families. And they'll be able to do the sorts of things that we want companies to do, but to me that's a sad development because what it means is that the profits, the wealth generation that comes from corporate production is going to be concentrated in the hands of these very few shareholders who are wealthy enough to own an entire company. And when it comes to inequality and wealth, I'm much more worried about that 
than I'm worried about executive compensation. Yeah, the they, also make, thing, they also may go around buying the odd newspaper as well. Oh, exactly. And and so they're not only getting concentrations of wealth, they're getting concentrations of power in the hands of a small elite. And I think that that's just a tragedy. One of the unique things that the American public corporation sector did during the 1950s was that we had these enormous American corporations, IBM, Bell, AT&T, that were widely held by mom-and-pop investors. And the result was that the average American had a real personal stake and really benefited from what was going on in the corporate sector. And now our corporate sector is being increasingly controlled by, dominated by, the, the shareholder wealth benefits go to this very small elite. I think that's obviously bad for most of us as Americans. I think in the long run it may be bad for even the elite because what we're seeing is an erosion of American support for the business sector. Also, you talk about, and you didn't mention in that little bit, um, the role that uh, managed um, mutual funds play in creating a uh, environment that is, again, short-term oriented rather than long-term oriented, unlike someone who has their 100 shares at at and their 100 shares of IBM. Yeah, yeah, and this is this is that tragedy of the commons problem again. If you're a mutual fund manager, you have to worry that if you don't get a good portfolio return in the next three months to two years, you're going to lose your job. And so that creates a structural pressure bias where investment managers are chasing the short-term share price pop-up. They have to because they're competing with people who are doing that. Now, and now I've got to ask a question that I don't understand how that can be. I mean, if somebody like Hero Price or Fidelity, these the managers have to know that this is luck. <laughs> I mean... You know, the, the random walk down Wall Street, it's just the idea that you've got some kind of market-beating investment strategy for 25 years old and you hit for three quarters in a row, that's luck. That's not any kind of perspicacity on the part of an investor, is it? Yeah. Well, that's, that's a whole other debate. The, the yeah. debate on that is pretty interesting. In most cases, it's luck, but actually there are a handful of people. There's that one guy who's, whose name I can't remember. Right. Who was it, it, well, no, it's it's not just Peter Lynch, and it's not Peter just Lynch. Warren Buffett. Yeah, it's about about ten percent. You know, the data suggests that about ten percent of managers truly do beat the market in a way that's consistent enough that we don't think it's luck. The problem is, can you, as an investor, really be confident that you found the guy or the gal who's in the ten percent? <laughs> yeah, well, even Buffett's controversial because he may have just been someone who did a better well. That would be, but the controversy is he he made his money on those, on on the long tail black swan things. That's where his yeah. came from, and he just recognized that there were people were paying too much for black swan events. Yeah, and and that's well, that that's all. I'm sorry, I won't, I won't go there because what I want to talk about now is Thomas Kuhn. I want to talk right. about the you're watching the evolution of this academic literature into what's called normal science in Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolution into the kind of creaking, broken science, which is open for wild-eyed, crazy guys to be able to say, oh, what are you talking about? The emperor has no clothes. Right. And you will get you know, to that, but I'd love to hear you talk about it more explicitly. Yeah. Now, it's, it's, Kuhn is a, is a wonderful philosopher of science, and the, and the point he makes is that people, this goes back to the beginning of our program, that if you hear people say something often enough, you just believe it. There was a time when people thought the world was flat, Right because that's what everybody told you. 
And what Kuhn talks about is how you make scientific progress and how people develop models or ideologies and they stick with them until it becomes obvious that the ideology isn't working and isn't describing the world. And it's only, you know, the example I like to use is if you lived in the middle of Asia and you were a farmer, you could go along thinking the world is flat because you'd never be confronted with evidence that that's not true. But if you lived around the Mediterranean and your culture had sailing, you might notice that as the ships sail out of the harbor and go off across the ocean, they not only get smaller, but the ship begins to disappear. Mm-hmm. And you might down. think, Exactly. First the boat, first the boat, the hull disappears, and then the bottom half of the mast, and then all you can see eventually is a little top piece of the mast. And that's the kind of thing that gets people thinking and gets people to come up with better models. And that's what's going on right now. I think a wide range of people are recognizing that this shareholder primacy ideology, you know, it may look great and simple and pure and mathematical, but it's not predicting what's going on. We should, we have the, you know, if, if you believe this stuff, we should have the best run corporations in the world. Our companies should be producing huge profits for shareholders. They, you know, everybody should be flocking here to create new corporations. Corporations should be thriving. That is not what's happening. And that's the kind of situation when people begin to see something that the theory just doesn't describe, they begin to think maybe we need a new theory. And I think that's where we are today. Um, the thing is also, in support of that, that empirically, you talk about Europe versus Britain versus the United States, because if we look to Europe, um, we find that this, the uh, part of the OECD that's most like the United States is Great Britain, and they have mm-hmm. the worst corporate performance. Absolutely. Boy, you know, their companies are disappearing even faster to the point where you know, there have been some analyses of like the top global companies. There are more great public corporations in Italy <laughs> than there are in Britain. Who? Yeah. Um, well, um, I mean, there's a, there's a whole bunch of them. I don't have the names on the top uh, of my head, but okay. but we do know there's only there's only one British company that was, was in the top 30, and that's BP. And I'm not sure it's still there. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine it's not. So, but the idea is that we've seen this evolution. We're seeing the creaking of this idea breaking down. The thing also seems to be that it's happening at the same time. We're seeing other failures of the incorporation of economics, um, use of the individual agent maximizing model to apply to areas where it really probably doesn't apply. Yeah, yeah. No, in fact, I I think of, to me that there are three myths that come out of free market economics in particular that we're now learning are just wrong, and not only wrong but destructive. One is the efficient capital markets hypothesis, which you've mentioned, and we now kind of recognize collectively that that is clearly not an accurate description of what's really going on in markets. Stock prices don't always capture fundamental value. Another idea that's increasingly recognized as wrong is this idea of shareholder primacy, that corporations serve the country best when you maximize shareholder value. And the third idea, um, I think, that is really uh, crumbling is the idea that people behave like so-called homo economicus, economic man, that we're always rational and always selfish. And I think we're learning that that's not only not always true, but in fact, it often, if people really were always purely selfish, you know, that doesn't produce great social results. So these were three ideas that absolutely dominated free market economics 30 years ago, and all of them are under pressure and failing today. Well, the latter is actually the last one is actually being tested directly and found to be false. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there are hundreds of studies of what people do uh, when they're asked to choose between 
getting the best possible payoffs for themselves and behaving in a decent fashion toward other people. And I am pleased to report that science has determined that 97% of us are not jerks. Unfortunately, <laughs> there is the 3%. 3% that, you know what we call the... Like, you know the 3% that, is, that are jerks, they're psychopaths, and some people think there's more of them in finance than other areas. But most of us are pretty decent people with a conscience, at least when the circumstances support it. <laughs> and it was in the past, in the 50s, during the Senate managerial model, that was important to rising in the exec, to the executive suite. And I guess that's one of the other things that's always struck me, is I don't think it's that hard to be the CEO or the manager of a major corporation in the United States, but it's hard to become one. Well, I'll, I'll actually, uh, I hate to say it, Jay, I'll disagree with you on the first Please point. Please do. It's really hard to be a CEO. I, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I do know a fair number of CEOs, and, yeah, there are some bad actors out there, but the good ones are amazing. And Look. what a lot of people don't realize is that the good CEOs, they put, it's an enormous sacrifice. They give up almost all of their lives, their personal lives. And the good ones are really motivated. When you really see leadership in the, in the executive suite, these are people who are driven by the desire to build a great company, take care of their employees, you know, produce a great product. That's the, you know, the, those are the CEOs that, that I have the utmost respect for and that you know, build fabulous companies. But we've got a problem. As long as we're tying their pay to stock price and telling them that they're supposed to maximize share price no matter what, we shouldn't be too surprised when that's what they do. Uh-huh. Well, that's fair enough. I'm told I have one more question. Let me see if I can grab it. And if not, we'll. Uh... All right. Well, we don't. Spocko's here, and uh, we have a question coming up from Spocko. How do you find this? As you, you've been traveling, obviously, and talking about this all around the country mm-hmm. for the last six, eight months or so. Um, how, is, how has it been received? Are people? Do people say, "Oh my God, I should have thought of that," or are they saying, "Are you nuts?" or what? Well, you know, I certainly get a few people who say I'm nuts, um, uh-huh. uh, fewer than you'd think, and many of them from hedge funds. <laughs> but I've actually been surprised. The book has gotten a really shocking – I've been surprised at the welcome and reception it's received from both the right and the left. So it's actually – the book has won two awards. Um, it's, it was given a media consortium award. Um, the media consortium is a consortium of progressive media um, you know, uh, book publishers, magazine publishers, uh, you know, uh, other media. And it was named one of the five high-impact publications for 2012. I'm very proud of that because one of the other winners was the, the Mother Jones videotape of Mitt Romney dismissing the 47%. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's but, it was also, but it was also just named Governance Book of the Year by Directors and Boards magazine. No, it's not ideological. This is not a partisan it's, it's, book. It's, it's, it's something that's really just saying, look, this is what the law says. Right. And what I'm, what I'm trying to say in the book is we're doing something that collectively is bad for almost all of us. Maybe it's good for a few CEOs who have a lot of stock-based compensation, and maybe it's certainly good for a few hedge fund managers. But for the most part, it's bad for investors, bad for employees, bad for customers, bad for the nation. Why are we still doing this? That's the message of the book. Let's go back and revisit this ideology. When we see that it's not grounded in anything solid and that it's not working out well, maybe it's time to say this is not what we should be doing. Well, that's a perfect close. Uh, we, we should stop dynamiting the ponds, I guess, is another way. Exactly. Stop using dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Lynn, so much for joining us. I know you've done a very so, busy schedule. It's really great you could take the time. 
Uh, well, thank you so much for inviting me, Jay. I really appreciate it. Yep, and we'll see you later on. Thank you very much. Thank right. you, folks, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, next week, we're going to have Greg Dallas talking about the $15 an hour wage law and the uh, moving workers forward, the fast-forward workers in the, uh, the uh, strikes against fast food organizations. Thank you very much, folks, and thank you, Lynn, one more time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank could not think of a way to explain